Cause you had a bad day You had a bad day So we are in a series uh, called bad days. And we are looking at the story in the Bible known as the book of Job, because whenever you talk about someone going through hardship, people in this world know that Job is one of those guys. They don't know anything about the real story. They only know that Job is a guy in, a bio, in the Bible who kind of went through some hard times. And if they know anything else, they know that Job maintained his faith. Well, today you're going to see how quote unquote maintaining your faith looks in the real world. Because Job in today's passages looks a lot different than people today would indicate to you you need to look when you're maintaining your faith. It's an interesting, challenging thing. And and so one of the reasons we're going through this passage is that for me personally, I just got to let you know, for some reason, when I hit bad days, it seems like they all come in a clump. You know, it's like not just one bad day per month. It's like I go for two, three months with nothing, and then all of a sudden it's like six or seven all piled on together. Uh, Sometimes what I'll do is I'll just wait around um, until I got six or seven ailments before I call the doctor, and then I'll make an appointment and they'll say, like, what do you want to come and see us for? And I'll say, I don't know, a whole mess of stuff. And, you know, I just kind of wait around until it all piles up. And life feels like that sometimes. My question to you is when you hit one of those bad days, how do you deal with it? And so we're going to be looking in this study, the book of Job. This is only week number two. And I want to remind you a little bit of where we've come so far. So last week I identified the biggest questions of life whenever we hit a bad day. And I'm not talking about the big bad days or the small bad days. I'm talking about any bad day. We always ask the same three questions. The same three questions are, why is this happening to me? You know, we're asking the questions of, is there anything I can do about it? And how long is it going to last? Why is it happening to me? How long is it going to last? And is there anything I can do about it? Well, last time we talked, two weeks ago, I identified for us another question. And it's the question of who or where is God in the midst of all this? At the end of the book of Job's introductory chapters, chapter 1 and 2 tell us this introductory story of Job, and at the end of that time, Job gets to a place where he says something that most people in most churches would never be allowed to say because someone around them would be like, oh no, you you can't say that, that's that's going too far. But Job says it, and I want to remind you of what he says, I'm going to put it up on the screen if you guys could go to that, the second slide, there it is. Job says in chapter 2 verse 10, he says, shall we accept good from God and not trouble? And Job right there at the end of this introductory section, he clearly says that God is the source of his trouble. Now, if you've been in church a lot, you know, people say, oh no, God is the source of the good things. It's human beings or Satan who's the source of the bad things. And Satan actually shows up in the first two chapters of the book of Job. He actually shows up as a character in the story, but nowhere in the entire book of Job does Satan ever get blamed for doing anything. Instead, God takes responsibility for the stuff himself. Job blames God, and then the narrator of the story tells us in all this, Job did not sin in what he said. The lesson that we learned two weeks ago is that God is the cause of Job's suffering, 
And are you okay with that? Because the challenge for us is, what type of God is God? Where is God when I'm facing my hardship and difficulty? And what kind of God? And so I asked you a couple weeks ago just to start praying this prayer. God, who are you? Show me who you really are. Now, we're going to dig a little bit more deeply into this because I need to remind you of some truths. One of the things is, like I just illustrated here, the book of Job is not a book about easy answers. The book of Job is actually a book of harder answers, but better ones. And so today, we're not going to look for the easy path. We're going to see a lot of people talking about the easy path, but we're going to look for the better path. And we're going to see it show up in a few different things. So let me give you some uh, review, some just backstory reminding you of some of the things we've covered. Well, the, the first thing that you need to remember is that the story of Job is a story that we don't know if it's historical or not. We know there's this guy named Job. We know it's the oldest story in the Bible, but it didn't happen when it was written. It was written a long time after it happened. And the guy who wrote it down, whoever that was, a guy, girl, we don't even know, whoever wrote down the story was brilliant and crafted a beautiful narrative that talks about the problem of suffering in a way that no one else in ancient history ever did. Before you reach Jesus, you don't hear this solution to the problem of suffering anywhere in the ancient world. And the book of Job is the record of a story that goes way back earlier than Moses. And so, our best understanding is that whether it was true or not for a real guy named Job, the story is true because it has been confirmed time and time again in the life of believers, and God confirmed it to us in the life of Jesus himself. So the story of the book of Job is true, even if it isn't historically accurate. That's the first thing we talked about a couple weeks ago, but I want to remind you of some of the other things we've covered We've covered this, per, this verse about the fact that Job didn't sin even though he was blaming God. But I want to take you to the next verse after it because this is the new territory. Verse 11 begins the new territory. Take a look at it. It says, When Job's three friends, Eliphaz the Temanite, Bildad the Shuhite, and Zophar the Namathite, if you don't know how to pronounce those names, I forgive you. It's fine. Just, you know, make it up with confidence. It's great. It's, that's okay. But when his three friends heard about all the troubles that had come upon him, they set out from their homes and met together by agreement to go and sympathize with him and comfort him. Don't you want friends like these guys? You know, they make a journey to go to Job because he's now suffering, he's having all this hardship, he's lost all of his wealth, he's lost all of his children, and he's even lost his health. He's right now just facing this painful, disease-ridden body, and his friends come to sympathize with him. Wouldn't you like friends like that? Maybe. Hold that judgment. Let's keep reading. He then says, uh, go on to the next slide there. It says, when they saw him from a distance, they could hardly recognize him. They began to weep aloud, and they tore their robes and sprinkled dust on their heads. Then they sat on the ground with him for seven days and seven nights. No one said a word to him because they saw how great his suffering was. Oh, man, these friends are so good. They see how much he's suffering, and they just sit down and shut their mouths. Now, I just want to give you a little piece of advice. When your friend is suffering... This is your best tactic. 
Okay? When your friend is going through a hard time, your absolute best tactic is to go to them, be with them, sit down, and keep your mouth shut the entire time. Because as soon as these guys open their mouth, it all goes downhill. I mean it goes downhill fast. From chapter 3 through chapter 27, these three guys get in an argument with Job about what Job needs to do to fix his problems. And they tell Job what's wrong with him and why he's doing, why he's facing all this stuff and how he can fix it. And Job the whole time is like, you guys are off your rocker. Stop attacking me with all this stuff. We'll get into that in just a little bit. But let me give you the structure of the next few chapters. Because honestly, if you ever pick up the book of Job and you start reading it, everybody gets lost in the weeds here. From chapter 3 to chapter 27, everybody gets lost in the weeds. And they're reading it and they're like, I don't understand this. And it's back and forth and they don't know who's talking. So you have to get a Bible with some good headings in it. This is the only time I recommend that. Get a Bible with some good headings in it so you can see the different places where the different people start talking and what they're talking about. But I'll just give you the quick overview. Let's put up the next chart here. Because what it shows us in this chapter, these sets of chapters, is that you've got these four dudes, Eliphaz, Bildad, Zophar, and Job. And I'm just going to show you that it follows the same pattern through all of these chapters. Eliphaz talks first, then Job, then Bildad, then Job, then Zophar, then Job. And then we start it all over again with a second round. And in round two, it's Eliphaz, then Job, then Bildad, then Job, then Zophar, then Job. And then we get to the third round. And again, we have E-J-B-J. And this is the only time in the Bible that you're going to find J-Z, you know, so close to each other. That was dumb. So anyway, here we are. This is the structure. You got three conversations that happen. Three conversations, they happen in the same order. Now, before the first conversation, Job speaks up in chapter 3, and he complains. And he laments. And he just basically says, God, why didn't you let me die when I was born? Because if I had died when I was born, I would be at peace now. That's a weird line. Like he's feeling suffering now. And he says, but if I had died when I was born, I would be at peace now. And there's something you need to know. In the earliest days of the writing of the Bible, there is no evidence that anyone really believed in something that we would call an afterlife. It wasn't a big topic for the people back then. It is a huge topic for people today. Everybody everywhere is like, you know, if you, if you want to go to heaven, you have to A, B, C, and D, and they have all the rules. Or, or the Christians will say, no, it's just believing in Jesus. But everybody's worried about the afterlife. But back then, no one was really worried about the afterlife. It wasn't a big topic. And yet, Job, oldest story that we have, has a picture of a guy who says, if I had already died, I would be peaceful now. It's an interesting, weird little thought, but we're going to see that show up time and time again today. But anyway, so here's how the structure goes. Phase one, phase two, phase three, or round one, round two, and round three. Job talks first, and then the rounds begin. And then at the end of Job's conversation in chapter three, or in, in round three, he then goes on to a longer extended conversation about something else. So Job gets the front and the end, and then this dialogue or argument is in the middle. So what we're going to do is I'm going to race you through a whole bunch of the passages 
that illustrate what these people are talking about. And they sent, they take a lot of time to talk about this stuff. It's poetry, you know, and if you ever read poetry, it takes people a long time to get their thoughts out. So I'm just going to summarize the thoughts for you, and I'm going to read you some sample verses from it. So let's start round one with the first guy. His name is Eliphaz. Round one, Eliphaz. And we're going to look at Job chapter 4, verses 4 through 8. Okay, round one, Eliphaz, Job chapter 4. Take a look. This is what it says. Your words have supported those who stumbled. So this is Eliphaz talking to Job. And he says, Job, your words have supported those who stumbled. You've strengthened faltering knees, but now trouble comes to you and you're discouraged. It strikes you and you're dismayed. Should not your piety be your confidence and your blameless ways your hope? Consider now, who being innocent has ever perished? Where were the upright ever destroyed? As I have observed, those who plow evil and those who sow trouble reap it. This is the first phrase that you need to kind of get the flavor of. And there are two things that Eliphaz says in here. He says, number one, Job, righteous people don't get depressed. He says that. He says, Job, you've been a good guy for a long time, and now trouble hits you, and all of a sudden you're sad? And Eliphaz is like, no, righteous people don't get depressed. And then secondly, Eliphaz says to Job, oh, and by the way, Job, only bad people have bad things happen to them. He says, this is what I've seen in my life. Those who plow evil and those who sow trouble reap it. Hint, hint, the good people don't get the trouble. That's Eliphaz's main point. Let's go to Bildad. Now we skip over Job. We're going to come back to Job's responses to all these things. We're just going to look at the friends first, and then we're going to come back to what Job says. So let's skip over to Bildad. And Bildad says in chapter 8, verse 4, When your children sinned against him, he gave them over to the penalty of their sin. What is Bildad talking about? Well, Job lost all of his kids, remember? All of Job's kids were killed in a big accident. And now Bildad is telling Job why his kids were killed. Bildad says to Job, your kids were bad. And the reason they were killed is that God was giving them the penalty of their sin. Verse 5. But if you will seek God earnestly and plead with the Almighty, if you are pure and upright, even now he will rouse himself on your behalf and restore you to your prosperous state. Bildad says, Job, all you got to do is apologize to God for your bad stuff and God will make you prosper again. Again, Bildad and Eliphaz are saying the same basic thing. They're saying, listen, if you're a bad person, bad things will happen to you. But if you're a good person, God will bless you. Let's skip now to Zophar, because Zophar makes this most explicit in the earliest chapters. Chapter 11, Zophar says these words to Job, Yet if you devote your heart to God, Him, and stretch out your hands to Him, if you put away the sin that is in your hand and allow no evil to dwell in your tent, then free of fault you will lift up your face. You will stand firm and without fear. You will surely forget your trouble, recalling it only as water's gone by. Life will be brighter than noonday, and darkness will become like morning. You will be secure because there's hope. You will look about you and take your rest in safety. You will lie down with no one to make you afraid, and many will court your favor. But the eyes of the wicked will fail, and escape will elude them. Their hope will become a dying gasp. 
Zophar is echoing the words of the others. He says, if you get your act together with God, he will bless you. If you don't get your act together with God, you will experience all kinds of curses. So I want you to write down the summary. The friends of Job say in the summary, if you are good, God will bless you. If you're good, God will bless you. Okay, so this is the theme of everything they say. Job's response to them is a little aggressive. Let's look at this. Um, We're going to jump through a number of Job's different responses. And so we're going to look, first of all, at chapter 6, verse 4. Go ahead and switch to the next slide here. Put all the verses up on the screen so people can see where we're going. There we are. Job, chapter 6. We're going to start in verse 4. It says this, The arrows of the Almighty are in me. My spirit drinks in their poison. God's terrors are marshaled against me. Do I have any power to help myself now that success has been driven from me? Job says, hang on a second, guys. God's the problem here. These guys are saying Job's the problem. Job is saying, no, God's the problem. It's God who has caused my trouble. God's arrows are in me. Keep going. Look at chapter 9, verse 2. Job says, Indeed, I know that this is true, but how can mere mortals prove their innocence before God? What he says is, God, how could I prove my innocence to you? Job knows he believes he's innocent. He's not asking a theoretical question of, I wonder if I'm innocent and how I could prove it. No. He says, I know I'm innocent. How do I prove it to God? And then jump ahead to verse 33 in chapter 9. He says, If only there were someone to mediate between us, someone to bring us together. Job is like, God, you're so far away. You're so high. You're so mighty. You're so sovereign. And I need to tell you that I'm innocent, and you're not paying attention to me. So if only there were someone. If only there was someone who could be between me and God, who could connect the two of us. If only there was someone on my side and God's side who could somehow bring us together. And then look at the next verse. Job says in chapter 13, verse 14 through 16, he says, Why do I put myself in jeopardy and take my life in my hands? What he means by that is up until this point, Job has been saying that God has wronged him. And now he says, I'm taking my life in my hands because I've been telling the world that God is at fault. And Job is like, I'm taking my life in my hands. And so now look what he says next. He says, though he slay me, yet will I hope in him. I will surely defend my ways to his face. Indeed, this will turn out for my deliverance for no godless person would dare come before him. This is a weird line. There are lots of people who will quote one of those verses. They'll quote that line where it says, Though he slay me, yet will I trust him. And it's this real noble kind of thought. Though God would allow me to die, I will still trust him. But what Job says here is slightly different. What Job actually says is, I'm accusing God of wrongdoing. And if he kills me for it, I'm okay with that because then I'll be in front of him. And then I'll be able to talk to him face to face. And if I talk to him face to face, I'll be able to prove my innocence. And it's like, okay. So Job is like, God, go ahead and kill me, because then I'd at least be able to plead my case before you. Again, it's like Job thinks there might be something that happens after he dies. 
that he'd be ac- actually able to talk with God at that moment in time. <laughs> Let me give you the summary of Job. So the friends say, if you're good, God will bless you. Job says, nope, God doesn't work that way. In fact, I'll complain, but I'll also still trust. You see, it's a weird thing that's going on with Job in this story. He is actually complaining that God has done him wrong. And he's also trusting that God is good. Because he trusts that if he could just get to God, if he could have a face-to-face, God is good enough to see Job's innocence, recognize it, and honor it. And if there was someone in between Job and God, then that person in between Job and God could vouch for Job's innocence, and then, Job is, and then God is good enough that he would actually pay attention to that and do something about it. Job is complaining, yes, but he's also trusting Not trusting that God always does the nice thing, but trusting that God is always a good God. It's an interesting place where Job is. Let's look at round two. Because in round two, we see a whole bunch of this same stuff show up again and again, but this time it's a lot more contentious. Because so far, these guys have been saying, Job, you just need to get your act together with God and then he'll bless you again. And Job keeps saying, no, you don't understand. My act is together with God. It's just God is doing something and I don't know what's happening. And so now they get a little aggressive. And I think it's funny. So I'm going to read you some of the verses in this next section that I I think are just kind of funny. So here we go. This first one is from Eliphaz. I'm going to put him up here. Eliphaz says to Job, your sin prompts your mouth. You adopt the tongue of the crafty. Listen to me and I will explain to you. Let me tell you what I've seen. All his days the wicked man suffers torment. The ruthless man through all the years stored up for him. In other words, Eliphaz is looking at a guy who's suffering torment and he says, hey Job, I'll tell you something I know. Wicked people suffer torment. And Job responds with this. Let's put it up. Job says, I've heard many things like these. You are miserable comforters, all of you. (laughs) I just love that. They should have kept their mouths shut. They would have been a whole lot better, you know? But now Job is like, you're miserable comforters. So then Bildad jumps in, and let's see what he says. Bildad says, when will you end these speeches? Be sensible, and then we can talk. In other words, Job, you're a lunatic. Shut your mouth, so then we can talk. And then Job replies to them, how long will you torment me and crush me with words? Man, if you're ever feeling bad and your friend comes up to you and they try to fix your problems, sometimes I just want to bring out Job 19.2 and be like, how long will you torment me and crush me with words? In other words, just shut your mouth, you know? But maybe I could just say Job 19.2 and then I, you know, feel more powerful spiritual or something about that. Anyway, so let's look at round two for real. They do give us some interesting things. Uh, Bildad gives us the first interesting thing in round two I want us to look at. In Job 18.5, Bildad says, the lamp of a wicked man is snuffed out. The flame of his fire stops burning. Again, wicked people have bad things happen to them. Skip ahead. Let's go to Zophar. Zophar in chapter 20, verse 4 through 5. He says, surely you know how it's been from of old ever since mankind was placed on the earth, that the mirth of the wicked is brief, the joy of the godless lasts but a moment. Job, you've had your good times, it was brief, now your wickedness is being revealed. 
Because your mirth was just for a moment. Now your pain and your torment is here. And Job responds at the end of round two to say this. Why do the wicked, let's look at the, sorry, look at verse nine, chapter 19, verse 5 through 6 first. He says, if indeed you would exalt yourselves above me and use my humiliation against me, then know that God has wronged me and drawn his net around me. This is a, this is a tough word for us to accept. Because so far, Everything the three friends have said, if you read it, you'll see it for me. I mean, you'll see it clearly. Everything the three friends have said is what you and I already believe. And everything Job says is uncomfortable. He says things like, God's at fault. He says things like, God has wronged me. And what Job says is a little uncomfortable. And we look at Job and we're like, Job, that's not being a person of faith. You need to get your act together. You need to be a person of faith, Job. Faithful people don't complain. Faithful people don't get depressed. Faithful people don't accuse God of wrongdoing. Look at Job 21.7. He says, Why do the wicked live on, growing old and increasing in power? And now, Job begins to taunt his friends back and say, Wait a minute. Haven't you ever seen wicked people? They keep living Bad people get good things. Sometimes their bad things bring about the good things. Why do the wicked keep living on? If you guys are so right, why do wicked people keep succeeding in life? Well, Eliphaz has to speak up again. And so now at the end of the conversation, in round three, we get Eliphaz giving us a short speech, Job gives us a longer speech, Bildad gives us like three sentences, and Zophar doesn't even talk at all, because they're just all fed up. And so at the end of this whole round of discussion, argument, whatever, at the end of this, they're all fed up with each other, and so Eliphaz says this. He says in chapter 22, it's for your piety that God rebukes you. Is it for your piety that God rebukes you and brings charges against you? Is not your wickedness great? Are not your sins endless? Pause for just a moment. I want you to take another look at the verse there for. Eliphaz says, is it for your piety that God rebukes you? Hang on a second. Eliphaz is asking that as a rhetorical negative question. Eliphaz is trying to say, of course God wouldn't accuse you for being overly righteous. But if you were here two weeks ago, that's exactly what God did. God said to Satan, have you seen my servant Job? He's really, really righteous. And that leads to the bad stuff that's going on in Job's life. But Eliphaz, he speaks truth accidentally. He's like, does God judge you for your piety? Skip to verse 6. He says, you demanded security from your relatives for no reason. You stripped people of their clothing, leaving them naked. Back to Eliphaz. Go back to the Eliphaz slide. You, skip, you stripped people of their clothing, leaving them naked. Submit to God and be at peace with Him. In this way, prosperity will come to you. Here it is. Eliphaz is so fed up with Job that he makes up a sin. 
In fact, he makes up a list of sins and he says, Job, you probably did this and you probably did this and you probably did this. He just makes up a whole bunch of things. He tosses them out there to see what will stick. And then he says, finally, the summary, Job, if you get your act together with God, he will bless you all over again. And Job's response to that, chapter 24. Job says this, why does the Almighty not set times for judgment? Why must those who know Him look in vain for such days? As surely as God lives who has denied me justice, the Almighty who has made my life bitter, as long as I have life within me, the breath of God in my nostrils, my lips will not say anything wicked, my tongue will not utter lies, I will never admit you're in the right, till I die I will not deny my integrity, I will maintain my innocence and never let go of it, my conscience will not reproach me as long as I live. Here is the point, Job says, if I'm a righteous person, I'm not allowed to lie. And therefore, I can never say that I'm not a righteous person. And Job says, till the day I die, I will continue to defend my integrity before you people. Now, you and I might look at Job as an arrogant dude. There's only one problem with us looking at Job as an arrogant dude. God already told us he was right. God already told us Job was blameless. And so Job is the only guy in the text of Scripture, other than Jesus himself, who can say, I'm blameless and I'd like to prove it. But as we come to the end, there's something really important. See, God speaks at the end of the book, in chapter 42, and he says a specific thing that you need to know now. Even though we're not at chapter 42 yet, God says something then that you need to know now. After the Lord had said what he said to Job, he says to Eliphaz the Temanite, I'm angry with you and your friends because you have not spoken the truth about me as my servant Job has. What you need to know is that all the stuff that we've looked at Eliphaz and Bildad and Zophar, they're the ones who are saying the words that make sense to us. They're the ones that are saying the words that are the easy path. You're having hardship, do something nice and God will bless you. Be a good person and God will bless you. It's a quick exchange. You know, you scratch God's back, he'll scratch yours. The, these three friends are saying all the things that we want to believe, all the easy to understand things. And Job is saying the things that are too difficult to understand. He's the one who's accusing God of wrongdoing. He's the one who says, I'm innocent and I could prove it. He's the one who says, if only I could plead my case before God. And God shows up at the end of the book and he says to the three guys, you have not been speaking truth. And he says, Job has. That's the part of this story that goes way outside the lines. It's not just that we're seeing this argument between these two groups of people. We're seeing one group of people saying what you and I believe and God saying it's wrong. And we're seeing another person who looks to us like an arrogant person who simply is just accusing God of wrongdoing and God says he's right. Write this down. Job's friends were wrong. 
And now I encourage you to go back and read it. I encourage you this week to get the Bible app on your phone, open up the New Living Translation. I think it's the easiest one to listen to. Go to chapter 3, hit the audio button and turn it on. You're going to hear the voice of the guy from Caleb. He's the one who reads the New Living Translation version. It's annoying, but you'll get over it. And you just listen straight through it from chapter 3 to 27, and you will hear the same thing over and over. Every time one of these other guys speaks, it makes sense to you. And every time Job speaks, you're like, ugh. I don't like that. I'm not really, I can't, I'm not comfortable with that. But here's the point. Those guys are wrong. Righteous people don't get depressed. They're wrong. Righteous people don't face hardship. They're wrong. Righteous people don't experience suffering. They're wrong. But Job is right. And in fact, he's more right than Job even knew. For me, The most fascinating part about this book is what I'm about to show you. Because in this set of arguments, while the friends are making perfect sense and Job is saying things that don't make sense, Job says a few other things that really don't make sense. I skipped over a lot of the verses in there because there are some things that Job says that just really don't make sense. Well, at least they don't make sense to Job and his companions. They do make sense to you and to me. And I want to show you some of these because Job, in the midst of his abject despair, says things out of his mouth that are unbelievable. One of them we've already looked at, but let me show it to you again. Job says this in chapter 9. He says, I know it's true. How can mere mortals prove their innocence before God if only there was someone to mediate between us, someone to bring us together? And that's not the only time he talks about this idea. Look at this next one. Job says, all was well with me, but God, he shattered me. He seized me by the neck and crushed me. He has made me his target. His archers surround me. Without pity, he pierces my kidneys and spills my gall on the ground. And it's just so weird that Job, who just has boils on his body, is using the language of being crushed by God and being pierced. Look at the next one. Job says, even now my witness is in heaven. My advocate is on high. My intercessor is my friend as my eyes pour out tears to God. On behalf of a man, he pleads with God as one pleads for a friend. This is so weird because, see, we know the backstory and we know the backstory has God. We know the backstory has a bunch of angels and we know the backstory has someone called the accuser. Job doesn't know the backstory. The narrator knows the backstory of the accuser, the one that we translate Satan The Hebrew word Satan is the word accuser. We know the backstory of the accuser, but there's different things. Job says something here. He talks about an advocate. And what's weird is that the author of this story doesn't have a clue what the advocate is because you never see the author of the story describe it at all. The author of the story just knows that Job must have said this somehow, and so he writes it down, but he never tells us about an advocate. We know about God, we know about the accuser, but who's this advocate? And Job says, no, 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 he's my friend. 
And he pleads with God as one pleads for a friend. What does, what does that mean? Look at this next one. Job says this. He says, why do I put myself in jeopardy and take my life in my hands? Though he slay me, yet will I hope in him. I will surely defend my ways to his face. Indeed, this will turn out for my deliverance. We talked about that just a little bit, but now look at this next one. Put the next slide up there. He says, if only you would hide me in the grave, God and conceal me till your anger has passed. If only you would set me a time and then remember me. If someone dies, will they live again? All the days of my hard service, I will wait for my renewal to come. You will call and I will answer you. You will long for the creature your hands have made. It's as if Job is saying, listen, God, would you just stop paying attention to me, God? Just let me die. Put me in the grave and I'll wait there until you call and then I'll answer you and to bring it all to the culmination the best verse in the book of Job is this next one let's put it up Job says oh that my words were recorded that they were written on a scroll that they were inscribed with an iron tool on lead the irony of course is that we're reading his words Oh, that my words were recorded or engraved in rock forever. Keep going. He says, I know that my Redeemer lives. And that in the end, he will stand on the earth. And after my skin has been destroyed, yet in my flesh, I will see God. I myself will see him with my own eyes. I and not another. How my heart yearns within me. How in the world does a guy say, after my skin is destroyed in my flesh, I will see God? The oldest story in the Bible contains a guy who believes that if he gets put into a grave, sometime later, God will call him. And he will come out of that grave, and he will answer, and he will be declared innocent before God because of one thing. He has a redeemer. He has a friend. He has an advocate. And no matter what he faces on this earth, he can go through it. He doesn't have hope in these earthly blessings. He has hope in a God who redeems. A God who can take a bad situation and redeem it into a good situation. A God who can take something apparently evil and redeem it into something beautiful. A God who can take death and redeem it into eternal life. A God who is himself the advocate. Who is himself the redeemer. Who is himself the friend. Listen... Job gives us an easy path to take. It's all the words those friends have said. But Job himself gives us a far more difficult and yet far more satisfying path. The path of trusting a God when you don't understand what he's doing. The path of desiring to be with God so that you can get things cleared up. The pathway of understanding that no matter what's going on, there is yet a Redeemer who lives. And I hope you know him. My desire for you, of course, is that if you face some bad times, that you'll be able to deal with those bad times appropriately. But my biggest hope for you 
is that you'll do it by recognizing you have an advocate in heaven. We know his name now. His name is Jesus. And he came to give his life for you so that you and I could be declared innocent before God. So that you and I could be brought into heaven and into eternity one of these days so that we could, with resurrected bodies, see our Savior face to face. Because our God is a God who redeems. I want you to spend just a few minutes thinking about that, praying about that, and asking God this question. Just say, God, what kind of God are you? And see how he replies to you. See what thoughts he puts into your heart. And we're going to sing a final song. We're going to have our prayer team up front. I encourage you, if you have never asked for God to be your redeemer, today's the day where you could say, man, it doesn't matter what kind of difficulty I'm facing, what kind of issues I'm going through. God, I want you to be called my friend. You can come and you can say to one of our prayer team members, how do I make God my friend? And we'll pray with you and we'll pray for you so you can begin that relationship with God today. Thanks for listening to this message from Lafayette Community Church. We are all about helping you live the life you were made to live. God made you. God loves you. And his plans for you are perfect. So if you are anywhere near Lafayette, Indiana, join us this weekend at one of our worship gatherings. And wherever you are, check us out online at lafayettecommunitychurch.com.